welcome to the new Mastering Blood Sugar podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Mole, and each and every week, I bring you cutting-edge information, transformational stories, and exclusive interviews with the leading experts in the area of blood sugar, diabetes, and metabolism. My goal is to cut through the confusion by making complex concepts simple and to give you practical strategies to improve your blood sugar and optimize your metabolic health. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this next episode of the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast. This episode is sponsored by Sweet Life Nutritionals. If you're looking for the absolute best supplements, handpicked and created by yours truly, Dr. Brian Mole, you'll find them at sweetlifenutritionals.com. Our products contain the highest quality ingredients and the formulas are evidence-based and backed by science for blood sugar, metabolism, gut support, adrenal health, and detoxification, as well as specific formulas for cardiovascular health, eye health, kidney support, and immune function, visit sweetlifenutritionals.com and use the coupon code PODCAST to save 10% off your first order. Again, that's sweetlifenutritionals.com. Okay, so I am here with the great Dr. Stephen Gundry, who I'm very excited to speak with. Most of you have probably heard of his work and some of his books, The Longevity Paradox, The Plant Paradox, a new book coming up, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, today, The Energy Paradox, I think uh, sometime in the fall. So uh, very honored to have you on here today, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Good to be here. Okay, absolutely. So, uh, you know, you've had quite a journey, I think, um, uh, through your medical career. And um, I'd love, if you wouldn't mind, maybe quickly just sharing a little bit about that and, you know, how you ended up uh, doing what you do now. Yeah, I'll try to be as brief as possible. Um, <laughs> it could still, be an entire podcast. Yeah, I'm sure. it could be an entire podcast. <laughs> Um, back in the dark ages as an undergraduate at Yale, um, we were allowed to design our own major and, uh, we had to have a thesis and defend a thesis. And so I had a major in human biologic and social evolution. And I basically, the thesis was you could take a great ape, manipulate its food supply, manipulate its environment, and you would arrive at a human being. And I actually defended my thesis and got an honors. And I gave it to my parents and went off uh, to become uh, a famous heart surgeon, uh, children's heart surgeon, baby transplant surgeon, invented a lot of devices to protect the heart, um, eventually became chairman of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University here in Southern California. And I was also very famous for operating on people who nobody else wanted to. There were uh, there are always a few idiots who will take on just about anybody. Um, and I met uh, over 20 years ago now a gentleman I call Big Ed in my office. 
He was from Miami, Florida. He had inoperable coronary artery disease. All of his blood vessels were clogged up. You couldn't put stents in them. You couldn't do bypasses. And he had spent about six months' time going around to centers in the United States looking for somebody to do something. And everybody turned him down. And he, um, he arrived in my office at Loma Linda, and I looked at his angiogram uh, from Miami of six months earlier, and I agreed with everybody that there was literally nothing that I could do. And he says, well, yeah, that's what everybody says, but look, now I've been on this diet for the last six months, and I've lost 45 pounds. Now, this is still a big guy when I met him. He weighed 265 pounds at that time. And he says, I've gone to a health food store and I'm taking a bunch of supplements. And he literally had a shopping bag full of supplements with him. And he says, maybe I did something here in my heart. And, you know, I'm scratching my professor beard and going, well, you know, good for you for losing weight, but that's really not going to do anything. And I know what you did with all those supplements. You made expensive urine, which I firmly believe. And he says, well, what would it hurt to get another angiogram? Another cardiac catheterization. And I'm going, eh. Okay, so we get a new cath, and in six months' time, this guy has cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his coronary arteries. I mean, they're gone. And I'd never seen anything like that. Um, you know, even in the best of circumstances with, you know, maximum statin therapy, diet. You might slow the progression for coronary artery disease, but you certainly weren't going to reverse it. And they're staring at me as a reversal of coronary artery disease. So uh, I started asking him about this diet, and uh, he starts telling me about it. And I'm going, wait a minute, this is actually the diet of my thesis from, from Yale. And so... I called my parents who uh, lived in San Diego and said, you know, you still have my thesis. And they said, yeah, of course, you know, it's in the shrine. And it's actually sitting up here now. And I said, well, send it up to me because, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I was a big fat guy at that time, even though I was running 30 miles a week, going to the gym one hour a day, I had pre-diabetes, you know, which is like saying you're a little bit pregnant, as you know, um, <laughs> And high insulin levels, um, arthritis, migraine headaches, hypertension, high cholesterol. And I was told it was all genetic because my father was the same way. And so, um, and then I looked at his supplement list, and a lot of the supplements he was taking, I was using in solutions IV to protect hearts from dying in a bucket of ice water for 48 hours and to resuscitate actually dead hearts for transplant. And it never occurred to me to swallow these things. So I started taking a bunch of supplements and I put myself on that program. And I lost 50 pounds my first year and uh, subsequently another 20 pounds and I've kept it off for over 20 years. And so what I did with my patients, because it was working so well, is when I operated on them, I would kind of give them a list of things to do and some supplements to go buy it. Costco or Trader Joe's. Um, there wasn't an Amazon back then. Right. And so, because I wanted to keep them away from me. And after about a year of doing this, I had this bad idea one day that I was doing it all wrong. I should teach people how to eat 
and not operate on them rather than operate on them and then teach them how to eat. And I mean, that's really stupid if you're a heart surgeon. So I actually resigned my position uh, wow. at Lone and I went off and formed a clinic where, because I'm a researcher, I ask people, okay, you know, I'm going to ask you to eat certain things. I'm going to send you to Costco or Trader Joe's to get some supplements. And every three months, I'm going to do blood work on you and, you know, the Medicare or, or insurance would pay for. And we're going to see what happens. And that actually, you know, thanks to my patients, allowed me to look and find a number of factors that I think really influences our health. And, and I've, you know, published my results in circulation, American Heart Association, and some European journals. Um, and so that culminated in uh, the multi-bestseller, The Plant Paradox, of about three years ago now, and four other New York Times bestsellers. So, uh, and it certainly has struck a chord. Um, it's been translated. The Plant Paradox is now in 36 foreign languages. And uh, Longevity Paradox is rapidly ca catching up with that book in terms of popularity. So, <sighs> sorry, that was long-winded. <laughs> no, it, you know, it's changed a lot of lives and, and uh, I think provoked a lot of conversations, uh, has a lot of people thinking maybe a little bit differently about uh, some of the things that they thought they knew to be true. Um, and I'd love to love to get into some of those here today. But uh, I want to start with something maybe a little bit more uh, or a little less controversial, I guess. And that's the idea of, of chronic systemic inflammation and the connection to diabetes, because uh, this is a strong connection. We see it with things like Alzheimer's and dementia, uh, pretty much, uh, you know, most conditions along the metabolic disease spectrum. What do you think uh, are some of the main drivers of inflammation today? Well, um, Hippocrates said it best 2,500 years ago, uh, all disease begins in the gut. And how this guy knew that is just, uh, I mean, he didn't have the human microbiome project. Uh, he, he didn't have any of our sophisticated blood tests. And yet, um, the more I've done this now for the last 20 years, the more I've come to accept that he was absolutely right and that all disease begins in the gut and all disease can end in the gut if, mm. if you things right. So that's what I've spent now, you know, the, the last years, um, I guess, confirming that Hippocrates was right. And it's not just me. Um, I think most people are now refocusing their attention on leaky gut. And if you had, if you had asked me even 15 years ago what I thought about leaky gut, I, I would have, you know, laughed you out of the room and say it's pseudoscience and it's not pseudoscience. We, we can measure leaky gut, we can produce it, uh, and we can measure the effects of, of eliminating leaky gut. And you're right. I think really this chronic inflammation, I think, is driven by a, a porous uh, you know, gut wall. And our, you know, 70% of all of our immune cells line our gut. And they're there for a very good purpose uh, because that's where mischief is going to come across. And 
So, uh, yeah, it's uh, so people say, well, you know, we got to stop chronic inflammation. And a lot of people spend their time saying, well, we need anti-inflammatory drugs. We need anti-inflammatory supplements. Uh, I, I use the example of that's, uh, you know, putting out one of our forest fires here in California with a garden hose. Uh, you really want to stop what caused the forest fire in the first place. Hmm. And I use another example that I use in my books. Um, if, if you and I are out on a, on a boat in the Atlantic Ocean and we begin taking in water, uh, we have two options. Uh, one, we can get a bucket and we can start bailing. And that, to me, is what most uh, of our treatments are. We're, we're leaking and we're bailing water. And if we get a bigger leak, we're going to need a bigger bucket. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if a leaky gut is the cause of water leaking into the boat, it's a lot easier to put your finger in the hole and stop the leak. And one of the reasons I got interested in lectins is that lectins are a really good cause of leaky gut. There's plenty of other good work. Uh, Dr. Fasano at Johns Hopkins near you, I think, really pioneered the idea that gluten, which is a lectin, uh, is a perfect cause of leaky gut by uh, attaching to the gut wall and releasing zonulin and breaking tight junctions. And so I I credit his research for really, you know, figuring out how all this happens. Yeah, so uh, lectins, which is, I think, you know, the focus, uh, main focus of plant paradox. There's a lot of information in there, but, you know, that sort of seems to be the theme throughout the book, focus on lectins. Um, This is a... uh, this can be a confusing topic and this can be a bit more controversial. I think there's, uh, you know, uh, people who, who argue that maybe lectins aren't as dangerous as, uh, as some think they are. But uh, at any rate, you've done a lot of research and looked at this quite extensively. So what are lectins? Um, I guess maybe just for people who don't know what they are and then, uh, you know, how do they have the potential to harm us? Yeah. So, Lectins are plant proteins. Um, They're also present in in animals, but uh, it's part of the defense system of plants uh, against being eaten, either themselves or their seeds, their babies. And plants, um, because they're not mobile, have to use um, uh, bio weapons, uh, have to use... uh, they can't run, they can't hide, they can't fight, but they're chemists of incredible ability. So they use you know, chemical warfare, bio-warfare, to convince their predator that they're not worth eating. The predator gets sick, the predator doesn't thrive, the predator doesn't feel good, um, and predator figures out that it's not worth it. So um, this system has been in place since, you know, plant, plant predators came around. And I'm a plant predator. I eat lots of plants. People say, you're your anti-plant. No, I really enjoy eating plants. But you kind of have to know who your friends are and who your friends aren't and who's well-armed and, and who isn't well-armed. So um, lectins have been known about for 150 years. Blood typing was based on lectins. And 
among the things that lectins can do is coagulate red blood cells together. And that's actually how we type blood. Interestingly enough, uh, Dr. D'Amato, um, with the blood type diet, it was actually a lectin avoidance diet, but avoiding lectins wasn't very sexy. So uh, he knew that most people were type O. And so he made type O's the hunter gatherers and allowed them to eat meat, which resonates very well. That's why the Adkins diet and now the carnivore diet does very well. Right. Uh, but uh, he was actually, people don't give him enough credit. Um, he postulated and has now been proven that the blood type actually determines the type of sugar molecules that you will express not only on red blood cells, but also on the lining of your gut, on the lining of your mucous membranes, your nasal passages. And there's some fascinating research that people with type A blood are actually far more susceptible to viruses and bacteria than other types. And it's because of these different sugar molecules. And there's an interesting preprint out that type A's in our current COVID-19 pandemic do worse than type O's just because of this dumb sugar molecule. So, um, yeah, so gluten happens to be a lectin, and that's actually why it's pretty mischievous. But there are actually far more mischievous lectins that have been identified, um, particularly in the hull of grains. Uh, wheat germaglutinin is in whole wheat. It's not present in you know, white bread. But wheat germaglutinin, in my opinion and in others, is a pretty good way to make somebody insulin resistant and to gain weight. And uh, recently, wheat germaglutinin has been shown to stick to sugar molecules on our uh, vascular tree on our blood vessels and incite an inflammatory response. And I've recently presented two papers at the American Heart Association showing that the inflammatory attack on blood vessels uh, measured by what's called the pulse test, P-U-L-S, uh, subsides when lectins are removed from the diet and recurs when lectins are reintroduced. So I don't think this is all conjecture on my part. Um, certainly Dr. Fasano has not conjectured about how gluten causes leaky gut. Uh, and I think we're just, uh, we're, we're really scratching the surface of how mischievous this can be. Let me just, I did a podcast uh, recently with actually one of my original rather large critics, uh, Joel Furman, who I actually have a lot of respect for. And he, you know, attack me for, you know, lectin hysteria. But during the podcast, uh, we were talking about beans. And he said, I got to tell you, I always pressure cook my beans. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, so maybe I've had an effect on maybe one of my, maybe we're now good. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah, he's actually a very smart doctor. I followed Dr. Furman years and years ago in the uh, natural hygiene uh, movement and, uh, uh, and, and kind of learned fasting techni techniques and so forth from him, had him on uh, uh, 
uh, did an interview with him like four or five years ago and uh, very smart guy. I don't agree with everything he, he says or teaches, but, uh, but very smart guy. And, and uh, certainly he's helped a lot of people. So that's, uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I told him I have a, a great deal of respect for him. One of the first books, you know, I grabbed to kind of learn about this area was his eat, you know, eat to live book. And, right. Uh, we, Obviously, totally agree, disagree about the benefit of olive oil or the lack thereof, but mm-hmm. that's okay. That's okay. Absolutely. So uh, getting back to lectins, what are, uh, what are the biggest offenders? Obviously, wheat you've talked about and any other gluten-containing yeah. grains would be at the top of the list probably, but w- what are the other big offenders? So interestingly enough, we, uh, about 70% of my practice now is autoimmune patients, um, and one of the things we found is that people, most of these people are sensitive to gluten, but the vast majority of people who are sensitive to gluten are also sensitive to corn. And about 70% in, in my practice are, are sensitive to corn. And a lot of these people, they go on a gluten-free diet and corn happens to be a large component of a gluten-free diet. And other gluten-free foods, such as rice, such as brown rice, such as pea powder, pea protein, are actually very heavy in lectins. And I just gave a paper at the American Heart Association Lifestyle and Epidemiology meeting in in, uh, March that showed that taking people with gluten intolerance and leaky gut and taking away those additional lectin-containing foods, like beans, like corn, like brown rice, uh, like the other grains, and taking away the nightshade family, uh, potatoes, eggplant, tomatoes, peppers, uh, changes them to not having leaky gut. And interestingly enough, those people, at least their immune system at the end of all this, no longer reacts to gluten. Um, yeah. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you can become tolerant to gluten, but it is suspicious that if we do things right and seal the gut, uh, that you, and there are microbiome that love to eat gluten. There really are. Uh, we probably killed them off with, you know, with our Western diet, but I think there's hope that uh, a lot of us can become tolerant to these foods once we, you know, stay the course. So that's actually exciting. Yeah. Do do you think there are people who, uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's genetically, perhaps it's their lifestyle or their diet over many years, uh, are not as sensitive to lectin as others? Yeah, I I think, and, and I write about this in the book, I think that um, if you're in cultures where, for instance, your your animals have not been fed antibiotics to make them fat like uh, Western countries do, if you come from a culture where you're not given an antibiotic for every sneeze and sniffle and sore throat, that you're not taking proton pump inhibitors, that you're not taking a lot of ibuprofen or naproxen, which quite frankly makes leaky gut pretty good. Uh, I think, yeah, I think you can have a gut that tolerates these things, that you can have a microbiome that tolerates these things. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, 
lectins are not a problem for many traditional cultures, although I like to go and study these cultures, and many of them have lectin abatement procedures. Uh, for instance, the Southwest American Indians always peel and de-seed their peppers before they eat them because the peel and the seeds have the lectins. Hmm. Talk to so many chefs in Italy that will tell me that you cannot make tomato sauce without peeling and de-seeding tomatoes because everyone knows that the peels and seeds are lethal. And, you know, well, how do you know? Well, because my, you know, my grandmother taught my mother. And in Tuscany, they cook beans for 48 hours and they change the water. They soak their beans for at least 24 hours and change the water every four hours. And soaking will, you know, get rid of lectins, lessen the amount of lectin. And fermentation. Fermentation is actually a really good way to decrease the lectin content of foods. And I think so many cultures, the original preservation methods were fermentation. So uh, the Incas fermented quinoa uh, for, uh, before they ate it. So there's, there's ways that cultures have tolerated lectins. Interesting. So you've mentioned grains, you've mentioned beans and legumes. Uh, I know there are some nuts uh, and seeds that have that are high in lectins. What are some of the surprise foods that maybe people think are healthy generally, but uh, are are also high in lectins and could be problematic? Well, peanuts are uh, a bean. They're a legume. They're not a nut at all, and. There's some very good studies that sh in monkeys uh, that show that the peanut lectin is very atherogenic. And there's three studies where the peanut lectin in peanut oil was removed from red velvet monkeys, from rhesus monkeys, and given peanut oil without the lectin, and they did not get uh, atherosclerosis. And if you put the lectin back in in peanut oil, they do get atherosclerosis. Interestingly enough, about 95% of humans have a preformed antibody to the peanut lectin. Hmm. Now, when, when I was growing up, nobody had peanut allergies, even though those antibodies are there. And now, of course, you you know send our kids to school with EpiPens. Um, right. because, and, and I think that gets to another point. Our immune systems have been so activated, our baseline inflammatory level is now so high that something that wouldn't have bothered us 50 years ago now becomes a major antigen that will attack you know, instantaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, cashews are another troublemaker. Interestingly, uh, I've found that the squash family, things like cucumbers, things like squashes, uh, the peel and the seeds also have lectins. And it, it surprised me through the years that somebody who's really eating well and they love cucumbers, uh, and we take their cucumbers away from them and their autoimmune disease goes away. And they go, mm. cucumbers. And yet, if you, go to, if you go to France or Italy or Greece, they serve you peeled and de-seeded cucumber strips. And you sit there and go, Hmm, that's pretty interesting. You'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll never open a, a jar of red bell peppers from Italy and find peels and seeds because they've been removed. Um, cultures, 
fascinating how they deal with these things. Uh, can you talk a little bit about oats? Oats uh, are something that, well, a lot of people with blood sugar problems find that oats can raise their blood sugar, but it's still often recommended for people with diabetes for cholesterol reasons and beta-glucan fiber and so forth. Uh, but I know that uh, there are some potential problems with oats too. Can, can you talk a bit about oats and, yeah, and uh, some of the things? Yeah, oats have a... Uh, part of the gluten-like protein gladin in them. There is no such thing as a gluten-free oat. Um, as my, my, my oldest daughter is a horsewoman, and she will tell you that the only purpose of oats is to fatten horses for winter, and I actually agree with her. Um, yes, there's a lot easier ways to get beta-glucans in your diet than oats. And if you actually looked at those hilarious cereal commercials, you'd, you'd have to eat, uh, to have any impact on LDL cholesterol, you'd have to have about eight cups of Cheerios a day. And that eight cups of Cheerios would raise your triglycerides so high that uh, you and I probably agree that I'd much rather follow people's triglycerides than mm-hmm. just about any other lipid marker to know how we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So oats are not, they're, they're maybe weak gluten-free, but not really gluten-free, right. you would say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the problems with oats, and we've tried this, uh, I have a lot of patients who I call canaries, who, um, boy, they know when, when something's getting in them. And I have this wonderful nurse that I write about from Oregon who has had horrible migraines. And she really loved oats, and she has tried to pressure cook oats for well over an hour uh, and uh, still reacts to them. And there is one paper that shows that gluten resists pressure cooking for over an hour. So it's not a great, not a great option. Okay. How about nuts? You know, nuts are... Uh, you know, a food that is is looked at uh, fairly universally as healthy, although energy dense. And, uh, you know, a lot of people recommend nuts. Uh, we talked about peanuts and cashews, which are not actually nuts. But in the tree nut family, what are some of the best and worst nuts? Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of walnuts, pistachios, and macadamia nuts. Although I can tell you that if I want a patient to gain weight, if I've got someone who comes in extremely thin, uh, I put them on two to three cups of macadamia nuts a day, and it's a great way to gain weight. Uh, on On the other hand, macadamia nuts are almost pure monounsaturated fat and fiber, very little protein content. So it's a, it's a, I think macadamia nuts are great for a ketogenic uh, diet uh, as long as you don't go overboard. But I, I actually try to get my patients to have you know, about a half a cup of nuts uh, every day, quarter cup twice a day. Okay. And, and what are the, are there any particularly problematic nuts? Well, there, uh, yeah. The almond, unfortunately, has a lectin in in its peel. And I sadly have a number of patients with rheumatoid arthritis where they do react to the peel in almonds. 
Uh, I have a few of my rheumatoid arthritis patients that actually react to almond flour. They get aggressive in making uh, almond flour pancakes, cookies, almond flour tortillas, and we actually start seeing their anti-CCP3 and the rheumatoid factors start to climb. And when we back them off, um, it quiets down. Hmm. Marcona almonds, again, you look at cultures, uh, particularly in Spain and Portugal, have always soaked the peel off of almonds. And again, you, you look at cultures and say, well, why do you do that? That's a pain in the neck. And uh, so uh, avoid, uh, avoid the peel in almonds for the most part. Um, and can you talk about uh, flax seeds and chia seeds? Uh, because again, those are things that we see our clients use commonly. Is one, uh, you know, how, how do those square up? So I'm I'm a big fan of flax seeds. Um, chia seeds are actually an American uh, plant, and chia seeds uh, have lectins in them. In fact. Uh, Lauren Cordain, uh, who was the originator of the paleo diet, uh, professor at Colorado State, uh, actually turned me on to the fact that chia seeds had lectins years ago. I was on the phone with him, and I'm saying, well, you know, I'm telling everybody chia seeds, they're so good, and you know, they got all this fiber. He says, don't you read the literature? He says, they cause inflammation. I said, what? He said, I'm going to send you two papers. And in fact, that's true. Now, my trick is go buy basil seeds. Uh, basil seeds, sometimes called sweet basil seeds, do not have lectins. They actually plump up much quicker than chia seeds, and they're far better for you. Basil is part of the mint family, and it's one of the most uh, important anti-inflammatory seeds there are. And you can get giant big bags of them. Now, having said that, uh, I won't be able to get any anymore. <laughs> but they're on Amazon. And uh, you can use them exactly like you would chia seeds, and you'll actually find that, that you like them better. So there, there's, the, there's the hint for today. Tip, tip of the day. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Got an exclusive from Dr. Gundry today. I got a lot of questions also about oxalates, you know, which is classified as another anti-nutrient. Um, can you explain uh, maybe some of the potential problems, you know, where oxalates are and, and some of the potential problems with oxalates in the diet? Yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, so oxalates are very, very high in spinach. Uh, I've, I've mentioned this, but I don't make a big deal out of it, that mm -hmm. there is actually a lectin in spinach, and it's called an aquaporin, and uh, it's a fairly new information, but aquaporins um, actually control water movement through cells in plants. They open and close how plants breathe uh, in leaves. We have a set of aquaporins uh, in us. They actually in, are in our gut wall. And interestingly enough, they control water movement in and out of the, of the brain in the blood-brain barrier. And through some fascinating studies, it's been found that certain people develop an antibody to the aquaporins in 
potatoes, tobacco, green bell peppers, spinach, corn, and soybeans. And that antibody is very similar. The aquaporins are very similar in structure to our aquaporins. And so we develop an autoantibody to our own aquaporins, causing leaky gut and causing leaky brain. And also, a lot of my female patients who have interstitial cystitis, thinking it's oxalate in spinach, it turns out, I'm convinced now, that it's the aquaporin in spinach that causes their interstitial cystitis. Mm. So, I don't want to cause widespread panic. Most people don't react to this aquaporin in spinach, but I've had a number of uh, tough autoimmune patients, particularly women, who um, it turns out do react to the aquaporin and spinach, and they're big time spinach eaters. And so we take we take that we take spinach away from them, and knock on wood. So far, uh, that's been one of the keys to reversing their autoimmune disease. Wow, that does, not, that does not mean that everybody has to go and abandon spinach. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> Panic um, through the streets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've talked about the uh, alpha one casein protein in dairy products, uh, conventional, you know, cow's milk yeah. uh, grown here in the U.S. as you know, as inflammatory as a potential issue. Uh, how do you generally feel about dairy, and uh, are there safe dairy products or safer dairy products for most people? Yeah, that's a great question. And we, um, we in general, allow people to have casein, A2, uh, dairy products, cheeses, yogurts. Well, where do you find those? Sheep and goats are casein, A2 producers. Water buffalo is a casein, A2 producer. Most of the cows in southern France, Switzerland, and Italy are casein, A2 most of the cows in Northern Europe, uh, Scandinavia, England, Ireland are casein A1 producers. Uh, most of the cows in Spain are casein A1 producers. So um, you, you got to be cautious. Interestingly, the original cow of India was a casein A2 cow. The English brought casein A1 cows and bred them. So they're, they're, they're a mix of casein A1 and A2. Jersey cows are a mix of A1 and A2. Uh, Guernsey cows are A2. There are a few Guernsey herds in the United States. Uh, Swiss browns are A2s. Uh, Belgian blues are A2s. So long story short, um, cheeses, particularly aged cheeses, have some unique properties. They have some really interesting anti-aging compounds called polyamines uh, and spermidine. You can guess where the word spermidine came from. Uh, and there are some very interesting studies, particularly in Italy, that men who eat Parmesan cheese, which is obviously an aged A2 uh, cheese, actually have uh, far better longevity and less vascular issues than men who don't eat Parmesan cheese. So I'm not anti-cheese. 
on the other hand, uh, I do take care of a lot of uh, APOE4 uh, patients, the quote Alzheimer's gene. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I've become good friends with Dr. Dale Bredesen, the author of The End of Alzheimer's, who I think is the, the greatest researcher in Alzheimer's there is. And we both like to limit saturated fats in our APOE4 patients. And uh, that means cheeses. And interestingly enough, most of my APOE4 patients, and I have a lot of them, love cheese. Uh, it's, mm. It may be their favorite food. Uh, also, coconut oil uh, is, is a mischievous saturated fat for my APOE4 patients. Not MCT oil, but coconut oil. So that's, we do have a number of patients who do react to not only casein A1, but casein A2. And surprisingly, a number of my patients react to whey, uh, the other protein in cheese. So we, we individualize. We, we start them on our program, which does allow these you know, A2 cheeses. And then if we still have a problem or we suspect there's an underlying inflammation that we're missing, we'll test them for what portions of cow milk they react to and Lo and behold, uh, some of these people, we have to get rid of all their dairy. When you do testing, uh, do, you, do you use food, you know, IgG4 food sensitivity tests or uh, is no. it? Uh, okay. we, yeah, we, I use IgM and IgG sensitivity. Okay. I, I'm, not, I'm not impressed with Ig as, as, a, as a way of doing this. Um, we use a lab um, that I have no relationship with called Vibrant America, and they've got, they've got these stupidly named tests called Zoomers. I don't know who their marketing person is, but so there's a wheat Zoomer that looks for leaky gut and you know, gluten intolerance, and then there's a corn Zoomer, there's a lectin Zoomer that they designed for me. Uh, and then there, and I learned from them about aquaporins. And then there's a egg zoomer and a dairy zoomer. There's other ones. Uh, there's a really cool brain zoomer. And then they also do a food sensitivity that's more based on IgE. And I, I must say, I'm not impressed with food sensitivity tests, but mm-hmm. IgM and IgG is a really good way to see if your immune system's been activated. Okay, Just like, excellent. for instance, if we're looking at the coronavirus, we're looking at IgM and IgG. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Very true. Okay. Um, a question I get commonly is uh, about resistant starch. So uh, people often uh, start adding it to their diet after they read benefits. And I'm curious what you think about it, what some of the best sources are, and then uh, what makes it either better or uh, similar or different uh, than, than, say, adding fiber, for example, to your diet versus the resistant starch? Uh, I bet you and I have the same opinion about this. Um, so here's the deal. Um, resistant starches are still starches. Right. And yes, most of the resistant starches that are on my yes list don't have lectins. But it's one thing to take a resistant starch in its original whole form. Let's, let's take a taro root, for example, and uh, 
eating a taro root or even uh, yucca is one thing compared to grinding it up into a fine powder and then baking with it. And if we've learned anything about grinding grains into a fine powder, that you will drastically change its glycemic index. Mm -hmm. And so I see so many well-meaning patients who um, go on a resistant starch kick, but the resistant starches they're using are primarily flours or things made from them. And they don't realize that that new product bears very little relation to the original resistant starch. For instance, I've done experiments on myself using sorghum. Uh, sorghum popcorn actually is fabulous. It's delicious. It tastes like popcorn, but it doesn't have any lectins. It looks like mini popcorn. But when I eat popped sorghum, I can raise my triglycerides quite nicely. Uh, whereas if I eat sorghum whole, uh, it has very little effect on my triglycerides. So why pop sorghum? Because it exposes all these little kernels of starch to virtually instant uh, digestion into sugar. Mm. So I, I'm I have my patients very wary of quote, modern resistant starches. I would much rather have them get uh, fibers, soluble fibers from things like Jerusalem artichokes, things like artichokes. Uh, I think the chicory family are the superstars of, um, of, of fiber, uh, things like radicchio, things like chicory, Belgian endive. And as I tell all my patients, the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. Um, so, yeah, so what's, what's your thought? Uh, do you like resistance? Very much the same. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think in its natural. So I think if you're eating foods that you want to eat and they they are high in resistant starch, that's better than being high in quickly digestible starches. Um, if you're going to eat um, a banana, eat a green banana, you know, which has more resistant starch, less activated sugar. Yeah. But I don't see the point of adding it to the diet uh, to try to have some sort of blood sugar lowering benefit. I think if, if you're going to add anything, fiber would make more sense, but fiber rich foods would make a lot more sense. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, um, Unfortunately, I had uh, David Kessler, who was the head of the FDA uh, back during the Reagan administration on my podcast, um, and you know, uh, impeccable credentials, a dean of Yale Medical School, dean of UC San Francisco Medical School. But he tells the interesting story that uh, the FDA at that time made the labeling laws, and uh, they were going to make that all carbohydrates be listed as sugar. And, and Big Food marched into Reagan's office, as he tells it, and said, you got to shut that guy up. There is no way you can release this without, you know, you can't tell people how much sugar is in, your, in these products. And so the compromise was made that if you had 
two sugar molecules, if you had a starch, uh, you know, bonded together, you could put it under carbohydrates and not list it as sugar. But you and I both know that, you know, amylase in our mouths, uh, we take starch molecules that are exposed and break them into sugar virtually instantaneously. That's why white bread has a glycemic index of 100. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's the benchmark. That's right. And so one of the things I tell my patients, first of all, if you're picking up something with a label on it, put it back because there's no label on an artichoke. Um, But if you're going to read that package, take the total carbohydrates minus the fiber. That will give you the true sugar content. Mm -hmm. And for fun, just so people can understand what a gram is, you know, there's four grams of sugar and a teaspoon of sugar. And so when they do the math, like I, I bring out a bag of plantain chips and the serving size is a half a cup of plantain chips, which isn't much. And there's actually five teaspoons of sugar when you do the math in a half a cup of plantain chips. And they go, oh my gosh. Um, so I think it's a good way of educating all of us that what we would assume is is a pretty, you know, benign food. It's pretty scary when you do the math. And it's all thanks to the Reagan administration. Well, it was thanks to big food. <laughs> yeah, those missing carbohydrates that uh, people get confused reading those labels. They, they, they just don't add up. You add the sugar and the fiber and it doesn't add up, but it's that missing starch component. So that's, uh, that's really good advice. Yeah, and he, uh, he used the example just to, to finish. Yeah. He said... Uh, he said a bagel uh, has 330 calories and zero sugar and, uh, and four grams of protein. He says, so what's the rest? He says, it's actually easily digestible carbohydrates. So there's about, yeah. there's about 12 teaspoons of sugar in a bagel. Uh, wow. Yeah. And it's not wow. on the label. It's not on the label. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and, and I think uh, there's somewhere around a teaspoon of, of glucose in the bloodstream. And so the rest of that, you know, it hits your bloodstream almost right away. You can see why you get this surge of insulin and your body freaks out a little bit, uh, not knowing what to do with all that energy coming in so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's interesting in the, in the, in the new book, the energy paradox, we talk about exactly what the heck happens when uh, that burst of of energy comes into your bloodstream and it's actually not pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, so there's a few other things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, one of them is fruit. Uh, fruit has long been a darling of, of, you know, the nutritional world. And I think there's a lot of good things about fruit. But I also look at it as, you know, a source of, uh, you know, energy density, although not, uh, not packed with a lot of calories. Um, and it seems like fruits are becoming bigger and bigger and sweeter and sweeter as time goes on. So how do you, uh, how do you look at fruits, you know, with their, their health properties and some of the drawbacks? Yeah, I mean, fruit has been hybridized for sugar content. Um, We could go to the farmer's market in Santa Barbara and buy organic blueberries that are the size of grapes. And uh, that bears no relationship to, you know, wild blueberries that were so bitter when I was growing up. 
you had to have put a half a cup of sugar on them to make them edible. Uh, and so we're, we've become, these are mostly fruit bombs and even, even the names have changed like a, you know, a honey crisp apple. Hmm. I wonder what that tastes like. So, uh, in my research actually at, at Yale, one of the interesting things is that great apes only gain weight during fruit season. And fruit season is actually a limited time period. Fruit does not ripen year round in the jungle. And, Fruit is the perfect way to store fat. Fructose, as you know, for the most part goes to the liver and is converted into triglycerides and uric acid. And the fructose, why is that? Because fructose is a mitochondrial toxin. It's one of the best ways to kill mitochondria ever discovered. Hmm. It's pretty impressive how it destroys mitochondria. So I... I'm all in favor of fruit that's local and that is eaten in season. But we have to be, I think, very cautious about fruit. One In my original book, I said give fruit the boot. And certainly, we don't want to take fruit out of its package and have juice. Um, you know, a cup of orange juice has five teaspoons of sugar uh, in it. Uh, that, this is not a health drink. And one of the things that we should be aware of, uh, research in human beings in the 1970s showed that any sugar, whether it was glucose, fructose, orange juice, dramatically suppressed the ability of white blood cells to phagocytize, to eat bacteria and viruses. And that effect lasted for up to six hours after uh, exposure to any of these sorts of sugars. And boy, if we wanted a good immune system right now, don't drink your orange juice, folks. Now, I think, I think there are some safe fruits uh, if you're going to eat them. Blackberries and raspberries have the lowest sugar content. Pomegranate seeds, complete with the seed, maybe I think the the super fruit of the world, and luckily it's limited in a season. So um, there's still ways around this. Okay, great. Uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you about is protein. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about vegetables and things. Uh, protein is an area that I think there's a lot of controversy. You know, there's people recommending uh, very high amounts of protein. There's even the carnivore diet out there, and uh, you mentioned that earlier. Uh, and then there are those who recommend little to no protein or, or very low amounts of protein. Uh, how do you see uh, specifically animal proteins fitting into the diet? And then what do you think is sort of a reasonable amount of protein or, or a, a good amount of protein for most people to be eating? Yeah, as, as, I, as I wrote about in the longevity paradox, one of the things that is the I think uniting common factor of the blue zones are those places in the world that Dan Buckner, a journalist, described as having extreme longevity. And I actually am the only nutritionist who has ever spent most of his career living in a blue zone. That's right. <laughs> so anyhow, the things that unite those diets, they're, they're actually very widely different diets. But the uniting factor is they have very limited animal protein. 
And I think we, they don't all eat beans. Uh, they don't all eat rice. Uh, some eat huge amounts of olive oil. Some don't have any. So, but the, the unifying factor, in my opinion, is that they have very limited animal protein. And I measure insulin-like growth factors in all my patients every three months. And it's fascinating when, when we limit animal protein, their insulin-like growth factors dramatically fall. And this has been shown in research at St. Louis University, even working with the Calorie Restriction Society. Uh, and some of them are actually shocked with how fast their insulin-like growth factors fall. Do we want low insulin-like growth factors? Well, I certainly do. Uh, if you look at super old people who are thriving, they run very low insulin-like growth factors. And we know that people with high insulin-like growth factors have a much higher incidence of cancer. And uh, I, for one, don't particularly want to stimulate cancer cells. Do you have to be a vegan? Uh, I'm not a vegan. I call myself a vegetarian. Um, my wife and I eat mostly vegetables. On the weekends, we usually shellfish or fish. Will we every now and then have a grass-fed, grass-finished uh, steak? Yes, we will, but it's, uh, it's an exception rather than the rule. Uh, I had the pleasure of getting to know uh, Dr. Adkins, a ghostwriter, because my first book, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, was bought by Random House. And they thought that I had figured out the mistake that Adkins had made. And Adkins was a cardiologist, and he was a high-fat doctor. And he got into so much trouble with the American Medical Association that he morphed to being a high-protein doctor. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the mistakes he, he missed was we're taught that you know, we – don't have a great storage system for protein, and we use it for wear and tear, and we use it for building muscles. But unless we're building muscle, we don't waste energy. So we convert excess protein by a gluconeogenesis into sugar, and unfortunately, we store sugar as fat. So I see a lot of well-meaning ultra-high-protein diet eaters who don't practice calorie restriction actually become uh, diabetic uh, and have high insulin levels. And there's a couple of huge uh, worldwide papers looking at hundreds of thousands of people, and the increase in animal consumption is just as mischievous as the increase in refined carbohydrates in promoting uh, diabetes and insulin resistance. So um, if you calorie restrict, if you time restrict feeding and want to be a carnivore, it is the ultimate elimination diet, but as a long-term health strategy, there's, there's no evidence in any society this is a recipe for long-term good health. There just isn't a society that has proved that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So as we're getting close to wrapping up here, um, I have two questions that I like to ask all my guests, but before I do that, uh, you have a new book coming out. Uh, I'd love for you to mention it and talk about it for a minute. And then uh, how do people find your books and find out more about you? 
Right. Well, the the most recent book was the Plant Paradox Family Cookbook, and it's a basically an instant pot book for families. And uh, I gotta say, we've done a previous cookbook, but I, each time we do this, the recipes get better and better. And this one was designed for working families, and we're all stuck at home right now. <laughs> so it's uh, you know it's it's a great it's a great way to enjoy yourself, I guess. But right now, I'm just putting to bed uh, the energy paradox, which will be out uh, right after the first of the year. And it's, uh, it's kind of an extension of the longevity paradox. But I can tell you that half the people that initially present to my office present with fatigue and low energy and tiredness and they're amping themselves up on, you know, 12 cups of coffee a day and Red Bulls and wondering, you know, why the heck? You know, I eat great. Um, it, 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 it's a really deep dive into how our, our modern lifestyle and some of the chemicals that we're exposed to, like glyphosate, like Roundup, uh, are absolutely destroying our ability of mitochondria to actually make energy. And there's going to be some real eye-opening revelations that uh, that I, I and others have found. Um, so but we'll leave it Excellent. at that. It's going okay, to be energy paradox. And uh, yeah, and I would highly recommend your podcast. The Dr. Gundry podcast is fantastic. So make sure you subscribe and check that out. And, uh, and uh, what is your website? So you can go to drgundry.com or you can go to uh, Dr. Gundry, I'm sorry, gundrymd.com. That's not only my supplement company, but I blog there. Um, I have a, a health magazine as well. So lots of places to find me. Two YouTube Excellent. channels, you, you can't miss me. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so two quick ones uh, just to finish up. Uh, First, is there a book that you've either read recently or you read at some point in your life that uh, sort of was a changed your path or opened your eyes to something uh, that had a big influence over your your life or your work? Interesting. It's almost it's almost off the subject. Um, I was. an existentialist in high school. And uh, I read Albert Camus and John Paul Sartre. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, I picked up uh, and I'm finishing The Plague by Albert Camus. And if anybody wants to get an idea of how prescient this guy was. The plague was written in the 1940s, Hmm. and it describes a town that is um, cut off because of the bubonic plague and what happens to the townspeople and a doctor. And uh, it actually, that book changed my life when I was in high school, and I guess... uh, I needed to read it again to realize the, I guess, the, the truths that make living worth living in a time where so many of us are wondering, you know, why carry on? We've lost our job. We've mm-hmm. lost, you know, we've lost everything. We've lost social contact. Uh, so pick up The Plague. Um, wow. 
It won, uh, you know, it won the Nobel Prize for Literature, so he's not some slouch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll have to read it. I've never read it. Sounds uh, interesting. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, and last question for you today is, if you had a friend, family member, someone close to you come to you and, and uh, tell you that they had just been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and uh, they wanted uh, your best advice, a little inside information, uh, what would you tell them to do? Uh, my best advice is I have yet to make uh, the acquaintance of a type 2 diabetic who does not have to be a diabetic. And this is completely and totally reversible with food and planning food intake with um, time-restricted feeding, for example. I have yet to meet a diabetic who can be a diabetic. It's just the idea, you know, it's like if, if, if somebody came to me with pneumonia, and I'd say, oh, great, you got pneumonia. We're going to manage your pneumonia for the rest of your life. And they'd go, what are you talking about? What kind of quack are you? You know, I want you, I want you to get rid of this pneumonia. And you know, that's why I'm here. And yet, you know, unfortunately, uh, our community uh, says, hey, good news. We're going to manage, you know, your diabetes. No, you know, let's get rid of it. This is, this is so easy to get rid of uh, if, yeah. if people will follow a few rules. And I'm sure you find that to be true. Yeah, I, I uh, came up with this thing the other day. Don't manage your diabetes, manage yourself, manage your diet and lifestyle. And I think you'll, you'll be much more successful. Yeah. And, you know, and some of my patients actually just today, uh, you have an overactive mouth gland. And you know, <laughs> we're, that's right. You have a glandular condition. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, very good. Well, uh, Dr. Stephen Gundry, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Really uh, honored and appreciate it. Brian, pleasure to talk with you and uh, hope to see you sometime. Okay, I hope so. And for all of you who are tuning in, thanks for watching and listening. And uh, I'll be back next week with another interview uh, with the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast. Take care.